Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center. We're back with a new theme song and a new season. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Today, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen was joined by Attorney General Phil Weiser of Colorado and Attorney General Mark Burnovich of Arizona for a bipartisan conversation on issues facing their states today and what the Constitution, especially federalism, means to them. Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's program of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president of this wonderful institution. And let's begin, as we always do, by inspiring ourselves with the Constitution Center's galvanizing mission statement, which comes from Congress. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. Before we begin, I want to share my excitement about uh, our new America's Town Hall season. And there are a bunch of great programs coming up. Tomorrow at 2 p.m., this Wednesday, we will host a discussion in partnership with the Philanthropy Roundtable about the Constitution Center's Constitution Drafting Project. We have commissioned three teams, conservative, progressive, and libertarian, to draft constitutions from scratch. And the team leaders will talk about their constitution, and you will be as uh, inspired as I, I and my colleagues am about the unexpected areas of agreement that all of them converged around, as well as the thoughtful disagreement about how to resurrect and strengthen the guardrails of democracy. On Friday, in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania at noon, we'll host an annual symposium on the past, president, and future of presidential elections. It is a all-star cast of scholars, political scientists, journalists, and uh, public officials, and please join. Next Tuesday, February 2nd, Michael Gerhardt, our scholar in residence, will launch his new book, Lincoln's Mentor, The Education of a Leader, joined by the great historians H.W. Brands and Judith Giesberg. And then if that's not enough, on Friday, February 15th, we'll have Joanne Freeman, Robert McDonald, and Peter Anuff to discuss their new book, Revolutionary Prophecies, The Founders and America's Future. Check out the full schedule at constitutioncenter.org forward slash debate. Friends, I'm so uh, happy to welcome you to the latest in our great partnership of programs with the Center for Excellence in Governance at the National Association of Attorneys General. And it is so meaningful for the Constitution Center to convene uh, attorneys general of different uh, perspective, R's and D's, to educate us thoughtfully about the crucially important constitutional issues that they deal with every day. We'll take your questions throughout the show, put them in the chat box or the Q&A box, and I will introduce them uh, when I can. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our panelists. Phil Weiser is the 39th Attorney General of Colorado. He previously served as Professor of Law and Dean at the University of Colorado Law School, where he founded the Silicon Valley Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship. He served in senior leadership positions in the Obama administration and was appointed Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the U.S. Department of Justice, as well as Senior Advisor for Technology and Innovation at the White House's National Economics Council. He previously clerked for Justices Byron White and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, General Weiser, thank you so much for joining. Great to be here, Jeff. And Mark Burnovich is the 26th Attorney General of Arizona. He spent most of his professional life as a prosecutor at the state, local, and federal levels. He worked in the Gang Repeat Offender Unit and went on to be Assistant Attorney General with the Arizona Attorney General's Office. He has been a Judge Pro Tem of Maricopa County Superior Court, a Command Staff Judge Advocate in the U.S. Army National Guard, the Director for Constitutional Government at the Goldwater Institute, and Director of the Arizona Department of Gaming. He was elected by his bipartisan colleagues to serve as Chair of the Conference of Western Attorney Generals. General Burnvich, thank you so much for joining Thanks, Jeff. Uh, General Weiser, let us begin with you. Ever since the 1990s, uh, when you were a scholar and a commentator, you wrote about the importance of what uh, the scholar Professor Wexler famously called our federalism. Today, progressives um, uh, such as Dean Heather Gerken of Yale have uh, recognized your prescience and have talked about the importance of federalism or states' rights for progressives. Of course, uh, conservatives and libertarians have long embraced federalism. Please tell our audience 
Why is federalism important and why should citizens of all perspectives support it regardless of who's in power? Thanks, Jeff. The functioning of American governance is premised on the role of states. And this happens actually on the state level with county and municipal governance. This shared governance system can have tensions built in. It also has great leverage. And here's what I mean. When the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was being implemented, a lot of the heavy lifting was being done by state agencies who were operating within a federal regulatory framework. That's a familiar concept. It works in our environmental laws. It works in our healthcare laws. States are laboratories of democracy. They act as pioneers. They're able to be on the ground, close to people, trying different things. If you imagined a unitary federal system with just branch offices, you'd lose that connection to the people of each state. You wouldn't have local experimentation with local flavor. It would all be coming from the top. And whether it's issues around marijuana or other gaming, federal federal issues as well, states are, again, at the cutting edge, trying new things. And that's a positive element of American governance. General Brnovich, uh, you also have been an eloquent advocate for federalism in cases before courts and uh, throughout your professional life. Do you agree or disagree with General Weiser? And why do you think that federalism is important? Well, of course, I disagree with everything that General Weiser said because he's a Democrat. Isn't that what we're supposed to do nowadays? Not not agree with anything? Um, I I will say in all seriousness that um, it is a pleasure to be... um, on this uh, event today um, with Phil. Um, he is very principled. Sometimes he can be a little intimidating. You go through that resume and you're like, oh my God, I'm just a public school kid. But, uh, you know, he, he is a, he's a sharp guy. He is a sharp guy. And, uh, but, but I will say that we do agree um, uh, in, in this sense. Um, I like to joke a lot now that um, we are all Federalists now. During the Obama administration, when there were Republican attorneys general that had sued the Obama administration, um, there were a lot of folks that said, oh, my gosh, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, we should defer to the federal government, let the federal government, you know, finally get something done. And the irony, of course, was in the last four years, now you have the Democratic attorney generals suing the, or sued President Trump twice as often as President Obama was sued during those eight years. And so I think that depending on who's in office, sometimes we are fair-weathered federalists, so to speak. Um, but the reality is, and I, and I have been always consistent on this, is that I remind folks all the time that the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. And if you go back and you read, you know, Federalist 45, Federalist 51, you know, the folks that that crafted our Constitution expected and understood that the states would be the place where much of that political power resided, that the powers of the federal government were few and defined, as they said. And um, the Federalists and, and the authors of our Constitution fully expected, fully expected for the states to be a check on the federal government. Remember, even in Federalist 51, as, as Madison articulates, we want, um, you have a checks and balances between the judiciary, the executive, and um, the legislative branches. You know, we all think of that. We learn in, you know, our public schools. But the reality is the Federalists also fully expected, people who wrote our Constitution, for these states to be a check on that federal government. And when it came to fundamental issues of public health, safety, welfare, those were issues that were supposed to be left to the state. So, you know, Phil alluded to, you know, issues regarding marijuana. But, you know, I wrote an article and, you know, uh, filed a brief, led a brief in uh, 2017 regarding the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, which I felt was unconstitutional because the, the federal government was trying to commandeer the states. And quite frankly, an issue like gambling was something that, should have been left to the states, not the federal government to preempt. And so there are a lot of issues and unintended consequences um, when we let the federal government get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, you know, I just grabbed my pocket constitution and I remind folks, especially here at the National Constitution Center, that this is an amazing document. It's you know less than 7,500 words total. And yet it has this amazing framework. That, that really is just, it, it's such an amazing document on so many levels, just this notion of the checks and balances within the federal government, but also the state serving as that check on the federal government. And so I think it's very, very important um, that we have states and state attorneys general that understand their role is to uh, ensure that 
everyone plays by the rules, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. Thank you so much for that important uh, reminder for us not to be fair weather federalists and also for your inspiring quotation of Federalist 51. Friends who are watching, check it out after the show. We'll link it in the chat box. But Madison says, as General Brnovich uh, reminds us, in the compound Republic of America, the power surrendered by the people is first divided between two distinct governments and then the portion allotted to each subdivided among distinct and separate governments. Hence, a double security arises to the rights of the people the different governments will control each other at the same time that each will be controlled by itself. Great uh, citation, General. Um, General Weiser, you wrote a very illuminating statement about the state of our federalism, which you will post on your website and we will distribute in connection with this program. And you write in that piece, as we begin a new presidential administration, we can see how today's level of political polarization challenges federalism as a constitutional principle Last fall, for example, we witnessed the collision of federalism and political polarization when Texas went to the Supreme Court to challenge other states' election management. Fortunately, the court turned away this petition, yet the fact that Texas even brought such an action underscores the importance of ensuring that our constitutional commitment to federalism can weather challenging political winds. Tell us more about that extraordinary lawsuit, why you think the court did the right thing, and what role... Uh, courts do have in reviewing other states' election administration. So, Jeff, let me start with your prior statement, which is really important. The power given to states is a protection of liberty. Part of what our founders were terrified was, could there be authoritarianism in the United States of America? Would we cease to be a republic and be some version of an authoritarian regime? That was a core goal to prevent that from happening. A core strategy was presidential elections were to be managed by the states. So the other part you didn't pick up in my, uh, or didn't mention now, was I was arguing to the Supreme Court that states should manage elections and state rules around electors, could they be faithless electors, need to be heeded, and the federal government should not uh, interfere with that. And that was a matter of constitutional interpretation that the Supreme Court unanimously agreed for, uh, agreed with. We call it the Baca case. People in Washington call it by a different name. But in any event, it was a case came out of both Washington and Colorado. Why that's so important is because states need to be sovereign in managing the presidential election. That protects liberty. And we saw that this fall. We had states like Arizona, where uh, Mark had a situation that he did with real uh, integrity to manage what was the situation in Arizona? And President Biden won Arizona. In Georgia, the Attorney General, the Secretary of State, acted with integrity to the rule of law, hand-counted the ballots. The idea that you could have a state like Texas asking the Supreme Court to engage in some general oversight at the federal level of state conduct to elections is anathema to the architecture I just mentioned. And it was important that the Supreme Court and federal courts more generally respected the role that states play in managing elections. That is a strength of our system. It's a protection of liberty. Uh, General Brnovich, uh, General Weiser just complimented your principled uh, handling of that very difficult situation in Arizona. You were there to witness the certification with Governor Ducey. I, I understood that there are limits to what you can say about that uh, situation, but what can you tell us about the role that federalism played in the peaceful resolution of that challenging certification? And do you agree with uh, General Weiser that the Chiafalo case, which he argued before the Supreme Court, uh, the, the court was right unanimously to hold that states may punish so-called faithless electors uh, who don't vote for the candidate they're pledged to vote for in order to protect federalism? Well, first of all, because Phil argued it, of course he was right, right? I mean, uh, no, it was 9-0. It was I mean, come on, you know, that's a layup. Uh, no, but uh, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, um, we, we actually joined the brief supporting that position because I think it is the right position. And, you know, once again, if, you're, if you really believe in federalism and you're not a fair-weather federalist, I mean, the framers of our Constitution, they understood the system was, is uh, they created the Electoral College for a reason. And I think the irony was is that you know, just even a few years back, people were very critical of the Electoral College. They talked about, let's go to a majority vote, especially even after 2016. And I think the fact 
that the system worked and, you know, the dam didn't break. And, and we saw that in individual states, they were able to conduct their elections. They were able to certify their electors. The system did exactly what it was supposed to do. It worked the way the framers intended. Um, the only thing I would say, and maybe I misheard him a little bit, when Phil first started talking, he started talking about the power given to the states. And I just wanted to make sure he wasn't saying that that power is given to the federal government or given by the Constitution. Because once again, our my fundamental premise is, begins with, no, it wasn't the federal government that created the states. It was the states that created the federal government. And that was, it goes back to that notion that the people were willing to give up some of their power, um, especially, you know, as the framers talked about when it came to issues of, you know, national security. Um, you know, they wanted to make sure that when they had the Articles of Confederation, you had all these issues dealing with with trade between the states. And so there are some things that are truly nat national in nature. And we understand, as the Federalists did, that the power of the federal government is at its zenith when it comes to, you know, issues of, you know, foreign policy and, you know, military policy. But, you know, when it comes to these issues of, you know, public health, safety, welfare, and quite frankly, how to conduct a state election, I do believe that those are issues that are best left to the states. Jeff, can I pick oh, can up I on one Mark's point? Because it's a, it's a subtle point. In the Chiafalo decision, Justice Thomas, and I'm forgetting who joined him, uh, wrote a separate concurrence, making the point that Mark just made, uh, which is a subtle point, but it's important, which is, is it that the power was always with the states to handle elections? and the Constitution left that power in place, or as the Constitution creates the architecture of our federalism, does it leave the power of elections with the state? So those are two subtle, different positions, and how you think about the Tenth Amendment interplays, um, there's ongoing discussion about that. At, at, at the bottom line level, from my standpoint, pragmatically, it doesn't matter. The power of elections is with the states. There's a very interesting um, scholarly debate about how we get there. Uh, fascinating. And that I'll tell you what, I feel like I'm auditioning for a law school interview. <laughs> Let me guys know if you want me to teach at your school. So we, we'll, right. we'll welcome you in academia anytime, Mark. Well, continuing this. I got the beard for it. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll get the shoulder patches as well. Um, uh, uh, General Brunvich, uh, uh, you too have a Supreme Court case coming up. One of the most significant cases of this term. Yeah. Uh, is a pair, actually, of cases that will be argued together. Arizona Republican Party versus Democratic National Committee and Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee. And that's a four-year legal battle on an Arizona policy that requires voters who vote in person to use their assigned precincts. There, the Democratic National Committee challenged the law in federal courts, saying that it violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit agreed that because racial minorities disproportionately use ballot harvesting and vote outside of their precincts, the Voting Rights Act forbids the states from eliminating these practices. So tell us about your argument in this case that the bans on both out-of-precinct voting and ballot harvesting are commonplace, used by Arizona and dozens of other states to, protect, to prevent election fraud, and why you think in this case respect for federalism requires upholding Arizona's policy. Well, we were just talking about the states being able to oversee their elections and, and when it comes to issues regarding public health, safety, and welfare, that the federal government would defer to the states on those matters. Um, second, and I think this is an important point, uh, Jeff, that you we, we talk about the procedural history. Remember, this case began, there was a 10-day trial. Democratic National Committee filed this lawsuit. There was a 10-day trial. The state prevailed. It went to the Ninth Circuit. The state prevailed again. What happened was, which, you know, people know is a little bit unusual, is en banc, the Ninth Circuit then reversed itself. And so procedurally, I think that's one of the reasons why the U.S. Supreme Court took this case, because there was vigorous dissents, um, basically, that objected to what the new en banc majority did. And at the end of the day, um, there are, you know, two dozen states in this country that have laws related to out-of-precinct voting and even restrictions on ballot harvesting. And I think we saw in this last election, uh, more than ever, that people need to have confidence in the election system. You don't want people to question or you don't want rumors or innuendos or a mob mentality to develop with rumors saying this happened or that happened. And so I think when you have common sense election procedures in place that do not disenfranchise anyone, but end up resulting in people having confidence in the system, it's important. And I always point out that if after the 2000 election, the Bush v. Gore election and the debacle, everything that happened in Florida, 
there was a bipartisan commission that was chaired by co-chaired by Jim, President Jimmy Carter and uh, Mr. Baker. And they came up with recommendations on election integrity, how to prevent fiascos from happening in the future. And one of the very recommendations that Jimmy Carter and that panel made was to restrict who handled the ballot to immediate family members, caregivers, and you know whoever the postal person was that was delivering it. And so even Jimmy Carter recognized that restrictions on ballot harvesting were a good thing, or at least he did 15 years ago. Um, you know, furthermore, the New York Times had front page stories in 2012 about issues related to uh, mail-in ballots and, and potential problems. And so for us in Arizona, I mean, about three quarters of the votes are handled via the mail. So, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't have mail-in ballot. I vote, you know, um, by mail sometimes. But what I am saying is people need to have confidence. And if the legislature passes a law that they think is addressing or helping ensure ballot integrity, it is no role for a federal judge or a federal court and bond to overturn that. And I think the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court accepted this case, I think, is proof that they are very, um, uh, they think what the Ninth Circuit did in overturning itself is suspect as well. Uh, General Weiser, uh, this is an area where Democrats tend to uh, be on the other side and argue that election changes ostensibly made to combat voter fraud that have the effect or the intent of disenfranchising minorities should be struck down under the under the Federal Voting Rights Act. Do you have a view on the constitutional merits either of uh, this case or of other uh, election fraud cases? And, and if so, how, how do you reconcile that with your general commitment to federalism? I do. I think the most fundamental element of our democratic republic is that the will of the people need to be heard. And I believe states should be able to conduct elections and address election integrity. I also believe in voting rights and that the stain of racism as an original sin is one that our nation continues to have to deal with. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed because of an ugly history that disenfranchised minorities, racial and ethnic minorities, on a systematic basis. What is painful about this history is the Supreme Court undermined Section 5, the preclearance requirement, in the Shelby County decision where Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I worked for, had the following observation. Throwing out the preclearance system, which says any voting changes have to be pre-cleared to make sure they're not uh, discriminatory in terms of what happens, is like uh, throwing out your umbrella when it's raining because you're not getting wet. In the wake of abandoning the preclearance system in the Shelby County case, I think we are seeing creeping efforts that risk undermining racial and ethnic access to the franchise. The other provision is the one that involved in the case that Mark's litigating. He's doing his job uh, for the lawyer for the people of Arizona to defend his laws. But the provision is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which deals with what if you've got a provision that has a discriminatory impact that undermines the operations uh, of a system such that people of color are disenfranchised. And Section 2 provides a way to address it. So I do believe that voting rights and the commitment in the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act are fundamental to democratic governance. And that needs to coexist with federalism and state management of their elections. Uh, General Burnbush, any further thoughts if you think they're necessary? And then I'd love you. To- yeah, just and, and um, you know, it, it, Phil is a brilliant um principled, you know, he's very professorial. So it's, it's sometimes tough for, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's good and quick, but I just want to clear one thing up. Look, look, no one, neither one of us want to disenfranchise anyone. And, you know, and, and sometimes I think, um, when you, you know, have had issues in the past, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know, if, if you're a state, I mean, future generations shouldn't have to live with the stain of what, some someone's grandfather or great grandfather or someone like me. I'm a first generation American. I mean, my family wasn't even here um, when what was happening, the terrible state of slavery in this country. And so, um, you know, at some point you have to say, well, is there actual racism? Is there actual attempts to suppress people from voting or is it all conjecture or hypothetical? And at the end of the day, you know, there are certain states that I think get punished unnecessarily um, for, you know, something that's not happening anymore. I think my only comeback to that would be, Jeff, you'll know the date, something like 2002, 
on a bipartisan basis, Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act, saying that there was important work that had to be done to continue to have equal access to the franchise. So this was a law that was enacted recently in recognition of the 15th Amendment imperative to have equal voting rights. And I think the Shelby County decision was a major mistake. Uh, and I think Congress may have to enact a new voting rights law, effectively telling the Supreme Court, we recognize this issue is still with us. And um, I look forward to the day, Mark, when when we can truly say that we have gotten past this legacy. Um, I, I don't think we're there. And, and I do think that part of the reason why Shelby County occurred is because you literally had states that were still under the supervision of the federal government. So you had the federal government basically coming and running elections, even though there wasn't any evidence or proof of any sort of voter suppression or discrimination. And so, you know, at some point, there's also a fundamental fairness argument that, well, why should, you know, some county in Arizona have the federal government pre-clearing their voting sites and doing all this stuff, even though there's been no history of, you know, racism or discrimination. Um, but then you've got other places and maybe, you know, and I'm picking this randomly, but, you know, North Carolina or New Jersey that may have issues, but they don't have, the federal government doesn't get to come in there. And actually New Jersey actually did have a problem, but um, New York, the, the, where the federal government comes in and controls their elections. Thank you both very much for this important exchange. Friends who are watching, um, your homework is to read the Shelby County case, 2013. It struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act of, I think it was 2006, uh, passed by both houses of uh, Congress, as, as General Weiser said, and signed by President Bush. Read Chief Justice Major Roberts's majority opinion and Justice Ginsburg's dissenting opinion. And if you find one more um, persuasive than the other, then write to us, uh, jrosenthatconstitutioncenter.org, and let me know the constitutional reasons that you find one more persuasive than the other. All right, let us turn to the question of COVID and the Constitution. Several of our friends in the Q&A box are asking, how can we get a handle on the coronavirus if the states are each in control of their own situation? How do you rectify federal versus state rights with regard to COVID, especially with regard to distribution and the wastage associated with various states' autonomy? And I consider the fractured COVID response by various states as one of the clearest examples that sometimes federalism don't, doesn't work. General Weiser, rather than talking about the policy challenges of vaccine distribution, I'm going to ask you to jump in about the High Plains Harvest Church versus Polis case where the Supreme Court uh, in December tossed out a pair of lower court rulings that had permitted states to enforce COVID-related restrictions at worship services. One came out of Colorado, where the justices threw out an August 10th order by a federal district court that denied a request by the High Plains Harvest Church, which is in northern Colorado, to bar the states from enforcing capacity limits. And Justices Elena Kagan and Justice Breyer and uh, Sotomayor dissented and said the case was moot. Tell us about that case and what it says about COVID and the Constitution. Let me try to answer this question, Jeff, on three levels. First and fundamentally, one of the benefits of federalism is each state was able to navigate the pandemic, and, and I agree with what Mark said, with health and safety concerns that reflected how its own citizens saw this and with its own governmental machinery. If you had a unitary response by the federal government that didn't allow for that, um, we'd be a lot worse off because, frankly, the federal government um, over the last year's record uh, doesn't look so good. But a number of states have been able to chart their own ways. And I've written separately about Colorado's charting its way. With respect to how to address religious freedom during the pandemic, um, that was a complex issue. There had been initial litigation on it and came out of California. Justice Roberts had eventually sided with the position to give states a little more freedom and deference on how to craft those rules. We initially had been following that guidance more recently, the Supreme Court changed their tune in a New York case. And so we then went ahead to comply with the new rulings. And that was uh, ultimate issue and decided in the case you just mentioned. The question that the courts are going to have to deal with, and this is a, a version of what we were just talking about with voting rights. There are some constitutional commitments, voting rights, freedom of religion, where uh, federal judges have to ask how much are they going to uh, superintend or second guess either state elections or state pandemic restrictions. Uh, and my concern, which um, we'll see how it plays out because we're in a new area here, is 
to be careful because the easiest and best treatment of religion is uh, under the Smith case, you can't discriminate against religion. If you're allowing gatherings for one purpose, then you should allow it for another purpose and not discriminate against religion. Uh, I do think we'll see where the court's jurisprudence on this goes. Um, there's a risk that you might protect religion way more than anything else. And uh, I don't know if that risk is going to be materialized, but I would say that that is a concern that we'll have to watch. Thank you very much. General Brnovich, what can you share uh, about the constitutional dimensions of COVID and the Constitution? As uh, General Weiser said, the Supreme Court's latest statement is the case Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus New York, where the uh, that was a six to three case. Uh, uh, the majority says that uh, religion should not be unduly burdened. And the uh, three justices in dissent said that uh, religious organizations shouldn't get special treatment. Has Arizona had any religion cases? And tell us also about the case arousing, arising out of Tucson, where Tucson bar owners prevailed in an effort to halt a 10 p.m. COVID-19 curfew. Basically give us a sense of the state of COVID and the, and the Constitution in, in, in Arizona. Well, we have some ongoing cases, and I, I think that people on this call probably appreciate that Arizona, even just a few weeks ago, was one of the, if it was a country, it would have been the worst country in the world. And I think there have been a lot of people frustrated in some of the inconsistencies. Back when COVID first started, I did some interviews, including on the local NPR affiliate back in late March, um, early April, and I, you know, as a student of history, I was taught. I talked about the Spanish influenza and things that we could do as a society, and it all started with making sure we had the necessary trace testing, making sure we had transparency in the government, locking down hotspots, and trying to respond with a scalpel instead of a bone saw. And I think that part of the reason why there's there's a lot of frustration is because people aren't sure of what is or isn't going to happen, and the inconsistencies in the way that we've done restrictions or what can happen, what, what, who can do what and where, right? So you're talking about the curfew. So we actually issued an opinion several months ago, even before the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court case, basically saying that because of our constitutional rights, when it comes to things like restricting your right to assembly, your right to um, you know, attend your church, the government is um, most vulnerable in those types of restrictions because we have these constitutional protections versus, let's say, you know, your ability to gather at a public park to play soccer, where maybe the government has a little more authority. We also filed an amicus brief in a case where the liquor, the bar owners, had actually challenged the governor's um, COVID restrictions, saying that bars, if they had a certain license, a class, you know, 12, 13 license, that they could not stay open. But if you were a restaurant that served liquor, you could stay open. And so we wrote very strongly in our amicus brief that at some point, you know, nine months into the pandemic, you have to start looking at, you know, the severity of the restrictions, the consistency of the restrictions, uh, the impact that they have on people. And we felt that it was unconstitutional because for the very reason, um, and Phil alluded to the Smith case and, you know, what the U.S. Supreme Court was saying essentially is that, you know, if you're going to allow a restaurant to stay open, um, or if you're going to allow, you know, people to go to the liquor store, then how is it that they can't go exercise their First Amendment rights to attend a church or even, you know, to attend an assembly protesting maybe what their government's doing? And so I, I think that there is this constitutional overlay, but at some point we as Americans, whether you're Democrat or Republican, it's you cannot have this unfeathered transfer of power to a unitary executive, in this case, a state where a governor can, in essence, for nine months, declare this statute unenforceable, this statute enforceable, that can say that these restrictions are okay, this business can stay open, this business can't. I mean, who are we in government to determine whose livelihood should be allowed to stay open and who shouldn't? And so I think that that's what people are asking for, is some consistency. So you know, if the barbershop's going to stay open and the liquor store is going to stay open, then why can't the pub, if they're enforcing, you know, six feet, mask wearing, the same restrictions, why can't they stay open? It's that whole irrationality of it and the consistency of it. And, and I would argue that even under traditional U.S. Supreme Court tests, I, mean, I, I don't think on a rational basis you can say that this establishment can stay open because they have food there but this establishment can't stay open because they don't. And that's why you end up in these crazy situations where, you know, the best buy is closed, but 
but Walmart can sell their TVs and essentially have a competitive advantage because they have a grocery store within that store. Thank you so much for that. Uh, General Weiser, one more beat because there are so many questions about it. Casey, Casey Goodman says the fractured COVID response uh, is one of the clearest examples that sometimes federalism doesn't work. Aren't there some things other than common defense that are best done in a coordinated and consistent fashion? And we, we now have a new administration that's more willing to take federal response on COVID from a national mask mandate on federal property and federally uh, and transportation and interstate commerce to the possibility of invoking the Defense Production Act for coordinated vaccine distribution. Is COVID <coughs> an area where uh, federal action should trump federalism or not? Well, three answers. Um, first, one way to think about federalism is hedging strategy. If you told me that the federal government bureaucracy and administration was A++++ all the time, then you might say, why have federalism? You're just going to lower the grade. But let's live in the real world where the federal government's grades are going to vary widely. And then grades across states are going to vary as well. Having states have more autonomy on issues like pandemic response, I believe, can lead to a better outcome. And I will tell you, in Colorado, I feel we did better over the last year than if we had the federal government controlling everything, um, particularly given the way the federal government did handle last year. Um, the second point is there's a diversity of interests. So to get to you know what Mark was talking about, some states may say we really care about having marijuana shops open, or really care about having soccer games, but we don't care as much about having concerts or movie theaters. Um, we can have a longer discussion about the rational basis test in constitutional jurisprudence, but I also think to extent some states have different tailoring requirements. For whatever reasons, federalism gives you allow an ability to not have a one-size-fits-all solution. And then finally, yes, I agree. There are some areas where the federal government would be better. And it was a travesty last spring that states were bidding against one another for ventilators. The federal government's absence of leadership on critical issues of coordination, on funding, on supply chain um, was painful, was a miss, and was an area the states couldn't succeed in. States um, can compete against each other for things that the federal government could supply to everybody. And vaccines are a good example of that. We're now seeing the federal government, you know, in the world of supplying vaccines. Hopefully that will ramp up. Uh, I don't think the states trying to come up with their own vaccines would be a good solution. Thank you. For hey, that. Jeff, General, I just yeah, a couple please, things please do respond. I just want to put on the table some of the relevant questions because the, the Q&A box is really up. And the, uh, we have from uh, Beryl Bletcher, now that FEMA is involved, can feds establish nationwide standards for vaccinating? Same age group is a time to set up a nationwide system for registering for appointments. Counties are handling this poorly as they don't have the experience. Do you think, uh, General Brnovich, that a, a more of a federal response at this point for vaccine distribution uh, would make sense or, or not? Uh, well, I, I do think that in times of crisis, that's, you know, we have FEMA and it was established to help. Let's say, for example, you know, you have some rural county and Louisiana, they may not have the resources or experience to effectively deal with whether it's a hurricane or whether it's a, it's a pandemic. And so, you know, we are Americans and we want to help, you know, our neighbors out and even our fellow states out. But I do want to make this point, and um, Phil was alluding to it too, is that, look, what happens in Manhattan, New York, is different than maybe what happens in Manhattan, Kansas. And, you know, we are a very diverse country geographically, urban, um, versus rural. And, and so there are different needs and requirements. And even this question is, um, and I'm not picking on Louisiana, but I mean, there are parts that, you know, what's going on in, you know, um, you know, outside of Shreveport, maybe a different dynamic than what's going on outside of Phoenix, Arizona. And what's going on outside of, you know, Boulder, Colorado is probably going to be different than what's going on in, you know, some small community in the panhandle of Florida. And so I do think there are different communities that have different needs, and the federal government is there as kind of that safety net to help out and be that force multiplier when necessary. But I do think, I do think just as a matter of, you know, philosophy, look, we saw, as I alluded to, there was a lot of governors that became unitary executives with no checks um, that, that literally, I mean, states like Arizona are still in an emergency declaration where, you know, the government is extending statutes, making budget issues, and even the legislature's now back in session. I mean, there's a lot of authority and power that's been transferred to one person that 
in essence, is unaccountable. The courts are supposed to be there to, you know, kind of run a, run a check on this. And that, I think, becomes problematic if you multiply that. And now you have the federal government being able to do that and dictate to all 50 states. And one of the reasons why, going back to our original conversation when we were talking about, you know, Federalist 45 and 51, is that Look, the framers understood the government closest to the people would be more responsive, and they expected the states to be more responsive. And so when you get an unelected, especially bureaucracy, sometimes in Washington, D.C., you know, it is difficult sometimes for the states to get the federal government to do something or get the federal government, you know, to treat them fairly and equitably. And my, my secondary concern to that, the, you know, the other side of the coin is not only sometimes the inefficiency of the federal government, but the other side of that coin is, well, what happens when the federal government fills it in, um, fills in that gap? Because I think there is no more permanent thing than a temporary government, federal government intervention. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson was, you know, famous for, you know, famously said, if you let a bully in your front yard, the next day he's on your porch, and the day after that he's shacking up with your wife. Now, LBJ used a different term for that, but the point is, is that once you allow the federal government to fill that void, it ain't going away. And I think that's problematic long-term for the health of our Republican democracy. If I could add one um, important point, the anti-commandeering doctrine responds to a core concern Mark just raised. The federal government can't commandeer the machinery of the states. And so on this point about FEMA, FEMA is not allowed to, by its dictates, or Congress, by its dictates, essentially take over state public health departments and tell them what to do. Now, if FEMA builds out local branch offices, it can do what it wants. Um, the reason that's important is that states have their own sovereignty to them and their own relationships with their populations. In Colorado, for example, I had to sue the federal government because they tried to take this program, a burn JAG program, and totally distort the purposes to commandeer state and local law enforcement to assist in federal immigration enforcement. That was not something that the Burn JAG law was made for, and that violates, to my mind, the core principles of federalism. And so this anti-commandeering doctrine is an important principle that protects states from the sort of overreach that Mark was talking about. And we, we, I did allude to this earlier in the PASPA case, with, which really discussed that recently. But um, I hope this means, Phil, that if uh, the federal government, the Biden administration issues executive orders related to firearms, you may remember the U.S. Supreme Court had to deal with this issue. And it said you couldn't force local sheriffs to basically enforce federal, federal firearms laws. And so I think we all need to be consistent on this. And just the, la the secondary point on that is, I was not, if it came across that way, I was not implying that FEMA should go into Shreveport or anywhere else and take over their health department. What I was trying to, and I think I said, is that they could be a force multiplier and they could come in and help when it comes, for example, to administering vaccines or whatever they're going to do to a public health system that may be overwhelmed where we need to work collaboratively on a national level to help address those concerns. But even in Europe, even in Europe, they didn't have, I mean, Sweden was doing something different than the Czech Republic, which was doing something different than Croatia. I mean, even in Europe, there wasn't a, a unitary approach in how they dealt with um, the COVID response. And this is an important point, actually. The Prince case, the case that Mark referred to about firearms, means the federal government can't commandeer state uh, officials. Within a state, when you have a state law, local officials at the local level actually don't have that same sovereignty rights. Um, and so states are constituted unitary under state law. Um, and that's different from how the federal government is, which has to respect state sovereignty. Thank you very much for that great exchange. I want to- All right, get that clip and save it. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm on no. record. I believe in federalism. I'm not a fair weather federalist. You got it. Listen to that. I want to turn to tech policy, where I think you have some interesting areas of agreement as well. Um, General Brnovich, you filed a lawsuit in Maricopa County against Google for deceptive and unfair practices used to obtain user location data, which Google, you allege, exploits for its advertising business. You brought that under the Arizona Consumer Fraud Act. Tell us about that case and how you think states can play a role in uh, enforcing limits on the tech companies. Oh, Jeff, you're going to get me wound up now. I'll tell you, I don't know how much time we have. And uh, every time I start talking about Google, my computer seems to go out. So just in case anything happens, everybody know that it's not our fault. But um, the reality is, is that one of the great things that state AGs can do, Democrat or Republican, 
we have in our toolbox our state consumer protection statutes. And especially over the last few years, you've seen states engage more and more when it comes to issues like, for example, when there was uh, the banking industry was taking advantage of consumers and you know engaging what we called consumer fraud. And so we filed a lawsuit. I was the first AG in the country in state court that, that basically alleges that companies like Google have misled consumers, that they are violating our consumer protection laws by um, making it difficult or impossible for people to opt out, not telling them the full rules um, and conditions as far as their service. When, when you go on a Google search, I mean, they're collecting all this data. They know where you go, how long you're there. I mean, they know more about you than your spouse does. I mean, how long you spend somewhere. And it's not only just what you're reading online, it's your physical location. There are things that you never, you never thought you consented to that they are doing and tracking. And, it, and when they get all this information, they're able to not only target you for advertising, but they're able to essentially um, you know, mine that data to even manipulate you at times. And so I think this is, a, this is a huge problem. And so we've sued them in state court using our consumer protection laws, but we also are involved with you know, Phil and other states in a multi-state um, action and antitrust action uh, against Google. I mean, there's also one against Facebook. And, and you know, Justice Brandeis you know, had talked a lot about uh, antitrust law and I don't know if I use the, he's the 50 laboratories of democracy, the states are, but another thing he talked a lot about is that any entity, whether it's public or private, if it becomes too big and too powerful, it becomes a threat to our democracy. And so Standard Oil, Rockefeller, Standard Oil was broken up when it controlled less of a market share than Google does. And, you know, we, like I said, we could go on for hours talking about this, but when you, when you talk about manipulation, when you do a search result in your phone, I mean, are you getting the results that are based on actual results or because some advertiser has paid Google? You know, when you pop up on that first page of results, are you being manipulated? Are you being nudged? There's there certain stories you're getting. And I mean, the reality is, is that I think everyone knows this, is that because of social media, because of, you know, what's going on with big tech, I mean, I think it's increased the polarization of this country. And there is a conscious effort uh, to manipulate us in certain directions, whether we're left or right. And I think that um, I believe I believe that we as, as humans, there's, there's dignity in all of us. And I believe my information, um, I have a proprietary right in it. I think we, as Madison said, we have rights in our property and property in our rights. And I think that if some company, big tech company, wants to basically take everything that I do, say, look at where I'm at, if they want to use all that information, they should let me know about it. They should get my consent. And quite frankly, at some point, they should pay me for it. I mean, because that's what really the big tech companies are doing. They have monetized all this information. They're really advertising companies. Thank you for all that. Thank you for invoking the great Justice Brandeis in his opposition to what he so memorably called the curse of bigness in business and government and his insistence that the purpose of the separation of powers was not to protect efficiency, but Liberty, um, General Weiser, you are, you've written and thought so deeply about tech policy in your piece for this show. You wrote that the antitrust division of the Department of Justice failed to respect cooperative federalism when it claimed that once the federal government declined to challenge a merger, states were barred from doing so. Do you agree with General Weiser about Ju uh, Justice Brandeis's wisdom about the curse of bigness? Tell us more about the suit that you're joining him in against the platforms, and what role can the states play in challenging the power of the platforms? Jeff, there's a lot there. Let me go through it and first uh, note what Mark was saying, and it's important. The federal government sometimes can be asleep at the switch, and they can decline to bring antitrust or consumer protection cases. Because we have a system of cooperative federalism where our federal antitrust laws, and also a number of federal consumer protection laws, Dodd-Frank, for example, authorize state AGs to bring actions that is a redundancy. That is a safety valve. And that safety valve is critical. In the case against Google that you and Mark talked about, the multi-state, we brought allegations. We brought theories of harm that the federal government didn't bring because we have our own capacity to bring such cases. And our case, obviously I'm biased because we worked on this, is more robust and more appropriate. What I'd like to see is the federal government embrace all of our theories so that it's a more fulsome complaint. The federal government's initial complaint was a more streamlined one. That is a brilliant part of our system. And, and what you referred to in my uh, published remarks, people can get on our website, coag.gov. I note that there was a merger here in Colorado 
And the FTC said, we're going to let it leave it alone. And somebody even said to me, I think this was an outside observer. Well, it's only Colorado Springs. They're not that big a market. And I'm like, hey, those are my people you're talking about. Colorado Springs is a very big market. And we care about those consumers. We want them to have benefits of competition. So we took action in a case where the FTC failed to. And any suggestion that states lack that right is wrong as a matter of antitrust law. And let me get to a final point, which is near and dear to both Marx and iHeart, because we led a 40-state coalition on this point. Under airline consumer protection, the Department of Transportation is the primary overseer. We believe the airline consumer protection rights should be enforced not just at the federal level, but also by state AGs. And this is important because during the pandemic, a lot of the complaints I've gotten have been about airlines, one in particular, Frontier Airlines, a ton of complaints that they're not honoring the consumer protection requirements related to credits and available refunds. I want to be able to protect our consumers. That's an example when you put all the power um, or centralize the power or primary lodge the power at the federal level, you actually leave consumers worse off. Thank you so much for that. Uh, uh, General Brunovich, uh, on tech policy, there is an Arizona bill pending that would reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Friends, that may sound uh, technical, but 230, recall, is the federal law that immunizes the platforms like Facebook and Google for liability for any content they host as long as they don't review it. And if it were revised, that would require them to do a lot more content review, and, and some people think that would be good and others bad. I want to ask you about whether your office has taken a position on that bill, including do you believe it's consistent with the Constitution for one state unilaterally to revise Section 230 rather than to have the federal government do it? We have not taken a position on that bill. I do believe, though, that, and I've talked about this before, not in this context of Section 230, but even when California was passing some of its privacy legislation, that I do think that states do have a role, once again, when it comes to public health and safety, that um, you know they can step in and you know, pass regulations that address, for example, consumer privacy. And there, there's two things that I want to kind of just piggyback off of what Phil said, too, is that one is, and, and the airlines is a classic example, and this is even what you're getting out of this question. There's this whole notion of federal preemption, that have the feds taken up the field and the feds have to do it because, of, you know, the complexity or they have some statutory scheme and, you know, the state should be preempted from doing anything in certain fields. And I think that in the airline industry, we see the effects of that. So, as Phil mentioned, we've gotten a lot of complaints. In fact, I know people personally, people even within my that work here, within my family, that book tickets, had those flight cancels, and cannot get a refund. I have seen advertising by the airlines that I think sometimes crosses the line um, when it comes to you know advertising restrictions or claims as far as false advertising and you know promotions that they're doing. Um, and I think part of the reason why. We have so many consumer issues, whether it's processing refunds, whether it's people on airlines and, and you know, the way they're treated or not, um, is because of the fact that the airlines, you know, essentially they've, they've um, co-opted a lot of the federal regulators in D.C. with the FAA, and there's no one there that has that stick out there protecting consumers. And so, as Phil mentioned, him and I co-authored a letter that is NAG policy now that urges the federal government, if you're going to give the airlines bailouts, they're getting billions of dollars of bailouts. And, you know, whether that's a wise thing or an unwise thing, putting that argument aside, if you're going to do that, my goodness, give Arizona consumers, Colorado consumers, that they can go to their state AG and the state AG can tell the airlines, if you don't process these refunds or if you're engaging in misleading advertising practices, we're going to sue your ass. I mean, so I think we have to have that authority. And I think a lot of people are really passionate about this. Second thing that I think is really important, I should have brought up earlier, and Phil is so kind and generous when he makes me sound smarter when he like rephrases the way I say something. And um, but, but Phil had alluded to, um, you know, the state's right, the state's right to file an antitrust lawsuit. And I think this is one thing that's important. Even when we started this presentation and the email went out, I'm really a stickler here. I always tell folks that states do not have rights. States have powers. States have powers that are given to them by the people. The federal government has powers, um, but the people, you know, the Ninth Amendment, there are, power, there, there are rights that are reserved to the people. So I think states have authority and they have power to do certain things, but states don't have rights. People have rights, not government. That is a powerful statement, and it answers one of the questions which said, um, do the powers of the government come ultimately from the 
people or the states or the federal government. And you've just said, as the framers believed, that ultimate power, of course, belongs to we the people. Um, it's time. See, I was such a good litigator. I anticipated the question. Great, great, great job. That's an important <laughs> constitutional one, uh, which, of course, was at the center of the very debate about the meaning of the founding and was settled in favor of popular sovereignty. Well, it's time for closing statements in this completely uh, illuminating and rich discussion. And General Weiser, the first is to you. It's a version of what we started off with. But in light of this discussion, tell uh, your concluding thoughts and tell our friends why federalism is important and why they should care about it uh, uh, as a principle, regardless of whether they favor the particular policies that it uh, leads to. We are fortunate to be living in a constitutional framework that divides up power, that allocates power in a way that protects people and that creates better opportunities for problem solving. Having individual states creates a chance for people in those states to be heard at the state level, at local levels. And what often I'm seeing is the closer you get to the people, the less you see of the toxic polarization you see in Washington. State AGs work better together than I see people working better in Congress. I work better with my DAs in my state than I see in Washington. So when people think about government, they often get turned off, they get cynical, they lose trust. My suggestion, look at your state government, look at your local governments, look at how state AGs work together. That's the model for what we need to bring to Washington. And so the federalism gift we have is helping us get through this pandemic. It's helping us show what government of we the people government of the people, by the people, for the people look like. And so I'm very proud of our federalism and proud to be a state official. Thank you for that eloquent statement about the federalism gift we have. General Brnovich, the last word is to you. Why should our great we the people friends care about federalism and why should they not be what you so memorably called fair weather federalists? Well, I think first and foremost, it's what the constitution requires. And second of all, it really is uh, the best form of governments that we know. Um, this notion that government that's closest to the people will be more responsive is an important concept. And as I talked about earlier, having this tension, having the states zealously guard their powers is something very, very important. Our framers, the framers of our constitution, realized that the best way to form a long and lasting union was to have these laboratories of democracy that we referred to, even though they didn't use that term, we know that Justice Brandeis used it. And Justice Brandeis, in a 1932 dissent, said something, which I want to quote exactly, you know, he said, it is one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel and social economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. And so when we see things that are happening in this country, and whether it's you know, whatever, regardless of what you think about marijuana, um, regardless of what you think about the Affordable Health Care Act, that was based on a Massachusetts experiment in, in 2006. Um, you know, areas related to uh, different ways of providing, you know, welfare and the social uh, social net. In Arizona, we helped enact the FinTech sandbox that dealt with banking regulations. So there are all these things out there where the states can be on the forefront of coming up with new and innovative solutions. Sometimes they may work, sometimes they may not. But I do think that no matter where you're at, there's a reason why the cliche, one size does not fit all. It's a reason why it's a cliche and we all appreciate it. So to me, it is important that we continue to have the 50 states um, serving as a check on the federal government. And at ultimately, and maybe this is a conversation for another day, uh, we need to get back to um, appreciating that any government that's big enough to give you everything is big enough to take it away. And I do think ultimately, when we talk about our life, liberty, and property, the bigger the federal government gets, the less responsive it gets. And I think the more dangerous it becomes. Thank you for that wonderful closing statement. Thanks for the great repeated shout out to Justice Brandeis. Friends, that was the new state ICE versus Liebman decision, and you can check it out and learn from it. And thanks to our great partners at uh, the NAG Center for Excellence in Government. It is so meaningful to convene these civil and deep constitutional conversations, and we will very much look forward to the next one. And please join me in thanking our great guests, General Bill Weiser and Mark Brnovich. Thanks to all. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Peace. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Lana Ulrich and John Guerra. It was engineered by David Stotts. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And join us back here next week for another new program. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.